Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, your host here every week on Forward Radio, WFMP LP Louisville. We broadcast at 106.5 FM and live stream to the world at forwardradio.org. Maybe you're there listening right now, or maybe you want to catch up on the archives of this program or any of our local shows. You can find them all archived through SoundCloud at forwardradio.org. And while you're there, you could chip in to become a part of this community radio station. Maybe you want to make a donation today to help keep us on the air. It only costs $20 a day. What a bargain. Or maybe you want to become a programmer here on the station. There is room for you on our airwaves. If you've got an issue that you're passionate about, a community you want to highlight, then this is the station for you. This is the People's Radio Station. We built it for you, and it's by you, too. So we would love to get you behind these microphones. We'll provide all the training you need to get you ready and you could be podcasting and broadcasting with us here at Forward Radio. If you go to forwardradio.org, click participate and pitch us your show today. Or maybe you want to do a one-time thing. Maybe you'd like to do an access hour on our on our station. We'd love to have that. So uh, think about what you'd like to share and get in touch with us at forwardradio.org. Well, what I would like to share with you today on Sustainability Now is a really fun conversation I had with a couple of U of L students who were uh, working on their Sustainability Campus is a Living Lab course, and uh, they interviewed me here in the studio at Forward Radio a few weeks back. I got to sit down with Megan Husted and Maria Cora and talk about some of, uh, you know, turn the tables a little bit on me. I'm usually the interviewer, and this time I was the interviewee and uh, talked a little bit about what I think sustainability means and what lessons about sustainability that we can take from this pandemic that we've all been living through and where my passion for sustainability came from. It was a really engaging conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. So we'll play that for you now here on Sustainability Now. And uh, while you're listening, get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened. Yes, your community action calendar will be coming up right after this here on Forward Radio. Hello, folks, and welcome to this first and only episode of We Tested Positive for Sustainability. My name is Maria Cora, and I'm an anthropology and sustainability major here at the University of Louisville. And I'm Megan Houston, a sustainability major also at UofL. Um, we're conducting this podcast as part of our independent study course focusing on student, staff, and volunteer engagement with some of the sustainability initiatives here on campus. Today, we're going to be talking about the intersection between sustainability and the COVID-19 pandemic. It is now April 12th, more than a year after the initial outbreak, and more and more people have begun to receive vaccinations. However, things are far from back to normal. To tell us more about the sustainability perspective on this pandemic, we've invited Justin Mogg to be with us today. Hello, Justin. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on your show. This is so fun. I love the first and only. Don't ever say it's your only. <laughs> this is just your first. <laughs> Love that. But Justin is the assistant to the provost for sustainability here at UofL. Could you tell us a little bit about what that title means and give us your best one-minute blurb on what sustainability is in general? <laughs> yeah, Big question. <laughs> so hard to pack that down. Uh, so yeah, basically I'm the sustainability coordinator for the university. I'm 
kind of a sustainability office of one. <laughs> I direct report to the provost, and I'm really excited about the new provost coming into U of L. Just started April 1st, Lori Gonzalez, who actually has a background in some sustainability and helped integrate sustainability into the strategic plan at Appalachian State University when she was provost there. So I'm really excited to get working with her again. But really, I work with anybody on campus who's interested in integrating social, economic, and environmental responsibility, ethics, concerns, <laughs> however you want to put it, into everything the university does, the full life of the university, right? So whether it's what we're teaching about, what we're studying in the lab, like on our research agenda, or the way we run the university, but whether it's like the physical operations or how we treat the people we employ, all of that is all part of campus sustainability. And my goal is just to shepherd a process of greater and greater transitioning away from unsustainable habits and practices to and policies to more sustainable habits, practices, and policies, basically, so that uh, not just U of L can be sustained, but all of life on Earth can be sustained. And we are just one small part in that and certainly play, you know, an outsized role here in Louisville in terms of leadership, especially around sustainability, as well as in the Commonwealth of Kentucky and in our region. And I'm pretty proud of what how far we've come in the last decade or so. Uh, I've been doing this since uh, 2009, and I've noticed a lot of change at U of L. Well, thank you for that explanation. Now, in a previous meeting with our class, uh, Sustainability 401, you mentioned the incredible speed of the large-scale change in societal and personal actions during the onset of the pandemic. Can you expand on what you meant by that and how it applies to the field of sustainability? Oh my gosh, yeah, remember those days? It was like a year ago, exactly a year ago now. March or in April, early April of, of 2020, when it felt like someone had flipped a switch and like everything changed all of a sudden. Like none of us saw it coming. Sure, there were scientists who knew about epidemics and, and pandemics and and had some inklings that this one might be an issue, but nobody knew what it would do to us in America, in Louisville, and around the world in terms of just the sudden change in our daily habits. I mean, I guess it's been especially dramatic in the more privileged parts of the world where uh, we don't have to think about things like communicable diseases too much because it's usually not that big of a deal. But suddenly, like, everybody's thinking about it and everybody's taking action to tackle this global problem. And so suddenly people stopped driving. <laughs> suddenly people stopped going anywhere. Suddenly people stopped commuting to work. Suddenly people stopped having fun things like meetups and, and, and concerts and even going out to eat. At the beginning, we weren't even doing that. Uh, suddenly people started doing horrible things like hoarding. <laughs> right? <laughs> but and, and like all flying stopped. I, I remember those first couple weeks of the pandemic. Suddenly Louisville got real quiet like when traffic stopped you could suddenly hear wildlife again and people started saying gosh i think i think the birds have really responded to this pandemic and they've really come back 
it wasn't that they were here all along. We just couldn't tell because it's so darn loud with all the fossil fuel consumption in our city, right? So we have all these unsustainable patterns of behavior that are baked into daily life in a place like Louisville, especially a very car-dependent place like Louisville, uh, where where people just assume they can't do anything if they can't drive, right? Uh, and and suddenly when you take that away, you you learn how much it has been disruptive and unpleasant and destructive for us in all kinds of patterns. It's not just driving, right? Like we suddenly got a huge interest in gardening. Like, and it was, I guess, partly just like a, a response to the fact that you go to the grocery store and suddenly there's nothing on the shelves <laughs> or your restaurant that you used to rely on to feed you is closed because of a pandemic. So people start thinking, oh my gosh, my life is super unsustainable. I need to figure this out. I need to figure out how to grow my own food or man, what if the electricity went down or the, or the water stopped coming through my tap? Like, am I prepared? I think everybody suddenly got in that mentality. And the good way to go with that thought is to learn, right? And not to panic, maybe, but to use it as a learning opportunity and not just to learn alone, but to learn with your neighbors. And really, that was one of the most inspiring things I saw about the pandemic is suddenly people met their neighbors, right? Like people you were too way too busy to even think about before. Like, oh, they're just, they just live next to me. Suddenly like, oh my gosh, this is a real person who lives next to me. I should get to know them. And maybe we have some things in common and maybe we have resources we can share and maybe we can even learn together and build resiliency right here on our in our neighborhood and on our block, right? And that that is really super transformative. Now, I can already see like a lot of that possibility has, has scaled back, eroded away. But I think some things from the pandemic will be baked in for for a long, at least for generations. Like we saw like during the Depression, uh, nobody wasted anything after the Depression. Like that generation was like super focused on not wasting anything. Well, suddenly there was like in the 50s and 60s, this huge economic expansion. And like the younger generation didn't understand that ethic. And so we could lose we could lose what we've gained in the pandemic, too, if we're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm thinking just like in sustainability, one of the big challenges is behavior change. It's trying to get people to change their unsustainable behaviors. And that, that turns out to be quite a struggle. Um, oh, yeah. But in the pandemic, it seemed like you said, like flipping a switch. So I'm wondering, do you have any ideas about why it took specifically a pandemic to motivate people to change their behavior? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I mean, it often does take that. Like, our rational brain knows, for instance, that, you know, I think most of us, even the climate deniers, probably in the back of their mind somewhere know climate change is real. It's probably going to have some real negative impacts. But, man, I don't know what to do about it. And it seems like maybe the problems are going to be really distant, like, they it probably won't hurt us here in Louisville too bad, right? Uh, or maybe they'll be really distant in time. Like, yeah, it probably won't bother me. Hopefully not my children or grandchildren. Or they'll figure something out by then, right? So there's this, like, tendency. It's a classic, like, psychological problem. <laughs> this tendency to, like, put off taking hard actions or things we don't know how to do, things that are going to require us to learn some new skills or meet some neighbors we didn't know before. Like, that's a bit of a barrier for people, right? And so we need... Need little nudges, little pushes to get us over those simple psychological barriers sometimes. And oftentimes we'll realize, oh, this is actually not that hard. Like, and you know what? Pretty much 
all of my neighbors could actually afford solar panels on their roof too. Like, or the ones who couldn't, maybe we could get together and give them a no interest loan. Like, and suddenly like the whole neighborhood doesn't need fossil fuels anymore. Like it is really that easy. You know, some things in global climate change are going to be very hard and require a lot of pain. And the longer we wait, the harder and more painful it's going to be, which is why we need to take action now and not wait for another big crisis. Like we've seen how people react to like some of the impacts of global climate change, like massive hurricanes, right? Uh, or the tornadoes we saw in West Liberty, Kentucky about a decade ago, right? Like un unreal kind of destruction. Well, the way to bounce back from those in a sustainable way is to think about what it can teach us, right? And, and how we can actually build resilience into the rebuilding. And that's where we're at right now with the pandemic. We need to build resiliency and sustainability into the way we bounce back. There are, you know, I, I think there are some good signs and like the national policy scene about that. Like, OK, we didn't maybe get a full Green New Deal, but at least like the current administration is talking about investing in green infrastructure, investing in transit and rail. You know, these kinds of things that just haven't been on the table for decades because there was no real crisis to bounce back from. But now there is. So this is, to me, a really exciting moment of opportunity. Yeah, and I think that's awesome because you've touched on a lot of like the, even though it sounds kind of ironic, the positive impacts of the pandemic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, and everything you said, like, kind of explained, like, I was just like, wait, that's my mom. Like, she now is obsessed with gardening. Is she? Our whole backyard is a jungle. Our whole oh, sunroom awesome. is a jungle. She's obsessed <laughs> with learning about herbs. And so then I started my garden at my house because she inspired me. So, like, all of those things that you're touching on, like, I see that in my own life. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side of all the positive impacts, what have been some of the negative impacts of the COVID, COVID pandemic in terms of environmental sustainability? Plastic, plastic, plastic. Oh, man. The, and this is a perfect storm for the plastic crisis, right? Uh, is combine a global pandemic with a glut of petroleum. There, it was during the pandemic that the price of a barrel of oil went negative for the first time ever. There were actually so much oil in the market that they were willing to pay you to take it away. Like what? How irrational has our, and how overly subsidized <laughs> has become our uh, global petroleum market that we're, that we're at the state where the value of a barrel of petroleum is negative. It's just mind boggling, right? So there's this glut of petroleum and we're seeing the, the petrochemical build out right here in the Ohio River Valley, uh, just up river. They're, they're currently planning and building more and more uh, awful, you know, cancer alley kind of uh, industrial ecosystems, right, to take uh, petroleum and fracked natural gas uh, from the region and piped in from elsewhere to uh, and, and turn it into these nurdles, these plastic pellets to make more plastic junk. Uh, and this is this is obviously tied into the problem of global climate change because it is another thing that props up the fossil fuel industry, which needs to go now. We need to get off not just, you know, cars and their their fossil fuel consumption and the electric, you know, burning coal and natural gas to make our electricity, but we also need to get off plastic. We're not going to have it if we're off fossil fuels, right? Now, we will have some plastic because you can recycle plastic. 
if you do it right. And you can only recycle it so many times because it degrades over time. You can't make a new, same quality plastic out of the old plastic, which is a problem. Uh, but we're going to have a lot of this stuff around for a while. So I shouldn't say we, we need to get off of plastic overnight. But we need to get off of this disposable mindset in general and certainly off of this disposable plastic mindset i mean it was at the the dawn of plastics in what the 40s 50s uh there i've literally seen quotes from the the engineers at the time saying the future of plastic is in the trash can <laughs> like this was like it's not just about making durable tupperware it's about disposables right like this is our future like this was a plan right <laughs> and we have all you know come along like lemmings because it's a great product like oh it's so versatile and so cheap well the reason it's so incredibly cheap is because it's a byproduct of this highly subsidized fossil fuel industry and we're all just chugging as much fossil fuels as we can so there's all these byproducts sitting around that we don't know what to do with might as well make some plastic out of it well it's it's become a real real problem and we've all become aware of the impacts on wildlife right all you have to do is go down to the mouth of Beargrass Creek <laughs> which I love to paddle up right at the Ohio River and see the incredible amount of plastic trash that is accumulating in all of our uh, ecosystems around the world I mean microfibers you all heard about that too microplastics in general are now found like everywhere on earth even the most remote locations in the air in the water in the soil you're going to find microplastics is this like the most toxic thing? Is this as dangerous as nuclear power? No, no, obviously, right? Like we'd all be dead if it was because it's literally everywhere. We're breathing it. We're eating it. Um, but it just it's it's emblematic of the problem here, which is just an addiction to disposability that is totally unnecessary. Sure, there are some things we we probably should only use once in very specific applications, right? Medical things. And that, so that whole thinking about like, uh, single use disposable medical things. Now everybody had to have them for everyday living with the whole, you know, explosion of PPP, PPE, right? Um, we learned as the pandemic went on that what was most dangerous was the air we share not the things we share and touch, right? So, like, at first, everyone's, like, wiping down everything they got from the grocery store. That's not, I mean, very, very minor risk compared to just being in the same space with other people without masks. Remember at the start, we weren't even wearing masks? Like, we didn't even know. We were yeah, more worried about, like, giving house. a hug than yeah. it was a mask. Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, this is how thinking evolves and learning evolves and it's really compressed in a pandemic like we're all got to focus and learn and science really got charged up and tons of money got thrown at the vaccine right and so things can move really fast when we organize and when we focus and that is exactly what we have to do for climate change and that's the reason i'm hopeful because i now i've i've lived through a period where i've seen us do that as a society, not just in America, globally, right? All, all of humanity coming together to tackle this virus. Well, I got news for you, friends. Global climate change is going to be a lot more destructive than this virus. And so we need to give equal attention, if not more. <laughs> now, obviously, we got to get past the virus, and we are almost there. We are almost there. If we can stay masked up, <laughs> we're almost there and get vaccinated. Uh, but I would like to see us like ride that wave. As soon as we're done getting through the pandemic, we pour an equal amount of energy, if not more, and resources and money and attention and focus for everybody, not just scientists, right? Everybody coming together around the 
the next big pandemic is going to be global climate change and we and, and global climate change itself causes viral pandemics as well right so we really need to tackle this issue for so many reasons yeah and i really like what you were talking about about the disposable mindset and talking about the increase in like ppe because that brought up like a curiosity in my mind is like with all the disposable masks, gloves and wipes in the name of like public health, what does that mean for balancing environmental sustainability concerns with public health concerns, with everything having to be wiped down with disposable masks being now all over the ground I see outside, but like where's that balance of like, okay, we can have sustainability while also keeping the public safe from yeah. COVID. Yeah, exactly. Like we we've, learn some strategies for doing it in a way that's not as doesn't make as much pollution that's not as destructive um so you can choose to wipe things down with a disposable <laughs> rag or you can use a reusable one i mean that's how we've cleaned things throughout humanity until the disposable age right like it's not rocket science that you just saw before we started this interview i spritzed your microphone with some uh alcohol right that that's there's no trash here there's just a little bit of alcohol is all you need you don't necessarily need to throw something away in order to sanitize so that's a like a, a minor lesson in how to do it uh but there will always be a need in certain like you know, if I'm in the ICU, okay, throw some things away. But <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Every single person on earth does not need to throw some things away in order to stay uh, healthy and safe. When I think about the pandemic, a lot of times we think about global impacts. We think about, you know, globalization and people being connected through technology all over the world. And those are really large scale things. But specifically here on UofL's campus, what have been the impacts of the pandemic in terms of sustainability work? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, well, sir, so one of UofL's biggest challenges when, you know, I, I'm the, one of the people who puts together our annual carbon emissions report, our greenhouse gas emissions report, right? And, you know, 25% of our emissions as a university is due to travel. So suddenly in, in 2020, the university stopped financing flights, right? Nobody was flying anywhere. And suddenly, like, people were told to work from home, study from home. Commuting just went boo, way, way down. So suddenly, like, a quarter of our emissions are not happening. Or, you know, maybe more realistically, it's 20% or even 15%. But, whoa, that's incredible. Like, we never would have gotten there without the pandemic. Um, so, so little things like that are like, wow, this is great. But, yeah, meanwhile... We're investing in, you know, sanitizing stations with some disposable wipes for every single classroom, right? Uh, we're, we're buying tons of plexiglass, you know, which is a petroleum product, and putting it all over campus. And what's going to become of all that stuff once the pandemic moves on? Like, I, I, I worry. Um, but, you know, through it all, we've managed to uh, still do some good. It's not like, uh, you know, everything's gone out the window, um, not just in, in terms of travel, but we we maintained our if not increased our recycling and composting rates for instance um i was really worried that energy use was going to go through the roof because a, an important recommendation of covid is to increase the ventilation the number of air changes the amount of fresh air in a building well if it's really cold outside and you're bringing in fresh air you got to heat all that fresh air right during the winter and it's really hot in the summer you got to cool it so i was really worried that that would make a huge spike in our energy use it has increased it for sure but it's not as radical as i was fearing um and 
uh, I don't know. We we've we've taken this time of COVID to think about things like space use on campus and do, uh, maybe th rethink and reprioritize um, how much building space we, we actually need. And maybe people will continue some good habits, like maybe working from home sometime. Man, now, I'm a person who loves to come to campus and interact with people on campus, so I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, but, you know, maybe I've learned that I don't need to do it every single day or all of the day, right? And uh, same thing for students. Maybe they've become more adept at, at learning online, and, and so we have to travel less, commute less. That could be a good thing for everybody. Uh, and it might make us rethink things like parking, Right. Like we devote a ton of money and space on campus to parking vehicles. And suddenly this year, all that space was vacant. Like <laughs> what a waste. And it helps you realize uh, that maybe we could restructure things a little and reprioritize a little. And maybe we actually don't need as much space for buildings, classrooms or for parking than than we have in the past. Maybe there's better ways to use what we already have. Absolutely. Yeah, kind of going off of that, something that I was kind of thinking about, like in moving towards the future is like what that's going to look like, how that mix is going to work. Right. Of like people at home, because I know my mom, again, I'm <laughs> my mom, she's embodiment of everything, but she's already decided she does not want to go back to work. And my stepdad, who also works at UofL's, decided I want to stay at home working from home. Oh, really? Yeah, because he just likes it more. And okay. his biggest you know, positive things like I haven't driven my car in seven days because yeah. I haven't needed to. So he's like, gas is going down. He's like, I feel healthier because I'm at home. Like I get that commute time to actually be able to go to the gym or like do other things. So I think there's going to be a lot of positive impacts moving forward about just like lifestyle changes that people have mm. gotten used to. Mm. And I think this goes for everything pandemic wise, but like I feel like we won't be able to see the full effects of what we're living through until years, you know, in the oh, future. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But just in terms of like kind of going off of like restructuring your life, what do you think that we can learn from the pandemic that could be positive or restructure the way we think about sustainability? And what lessons or practices should we take forward into a post-pandemic world? Yeah, well, I mean, this this is the key question we need to focus on. And I already touched on some of these things at the beginning, but let me just reiterate and maybe expound a little bit more. I think we've learned the importance of our own personal and community resiliency. And what I mean by that is being able to respond positively to a sudden radical change in what day-to-day -day life and that radical change can look like all kinds of things like we need to be able to bounce back resiliently from just plain old economic shocks which is something i expected the pandemic to cause but some crazy thing about our market economy we didn't actually see that much of an economic slump i mean obviously people have lost employment uh, but the government has thankfully stepped in, at least to some degree, not as much as it could be, to help people who are out of work um, or working less than they would like to. I mean, not that it's at all perfect. We still need to do better there. And, and you know, there are disproportionate impacts on who's suffering the most, and that shouldn't be swept under the rug. Uh, but But we need to be able to respond to those kinds of sudden financial or economic shocks, but also things we call like natural disasters, which can often be like <laughs> anthropogenic disasters we brought upon ourselves, like, you know, Hurricane Katrina's, you know, you know, New Orleans has had hurricanes for eons, right? But when we try and uh, prop up a city that uh, without 
allowing the Mississippi River to continually build it up and <laughs> instead build all these systems of dikes and pumps. And then that system fails and the Army Corps of Engineers is suddenly responsible for the deaths of, oh, man, so many people in the disaster in New Orleans. You know, that's another classic example. And then how does New Orleans bounce back from that? And does it bounce back in a way that gentrifies, too? That's another big concern about disaster capitalism, right? You, you, you can read all about this. There's a whole book from Naomi Klein about disaster capitalism. And when we see things like, uh, you know, the, the third ward in, in New Orleans going underwater, uh, who is going to be able to bounce back from that? And is it only the money to lead who can come up and gobble up all the land that now nobody is there? You know, now it's vacant and it's cheap uh, and, and build something for, for rich people rather than the residents who were originally there. And so we see those kinds of things happen in Louisville, right? Even without dramatic hurricanes. Um, but yeah, it's building in this kind of resiliency, whether it's you know a, a natural disaster, a financial one, or a, a something like a pandemic. Uh, we as people and as a, you know individuals, households, but also as a community need to be able to respond positively to those. And we have seen this system tested here locally. And it's not all bad. It's not all good. Like we've seen some positive things. But yeah, I think a lot of us as individuals have certainly learned the value of figuring out how to provide for ourselves the basic things that sustain us, understand where our water comes from, where our electricity comes from, where our food comes from. What will I do? People had to finally think about what will I do if what I want is not available on the marketplace. And we need all kinds of non-market-based solutions to sustainability, whether it's, you know, growing herbs in a pot on your, in your window or doing some serious urban agriculture. And again, it's not just what me as an individual, you know, it's not about like building bigger walls and buying guns to defend your palace. That's not what I'm talking about. But like as community, do we have the resources we need here? Yes. Do we recognize that? Do we know how to find them? Do we know how to mobilize them in a time of need? Maybe not as much as we should. And so I think a lot of people have learned the value and importance of that during the pandemic. And I, I really hope those behaviors are sustained. Um, and people also learn just the value of like taking a walk. <laughs> you know, right. like we used to think of, uh, uh, you know, exercise as like, okay, I'm going to the gym, I'm going to a, an exercise class, or I'm going to like an organized uh, a sporting event, right? Um, well, there's other ways to get exercise and just build it into your day. I've known this as a lifelong cyclist, right? It's one of the reasons I've really been appreciative of the, my decision at 15 never to get a driver's license. It means I get activity every single day, you know? I always got to get somewhere, and instead of using fossil fuels to get me there, I, I get to use my own power. And then suddenly I'm, like, way healthier than I would have been <laughs> if I was living a sedentary life. And I don't need necessarily to worry about when am I going to get to the gym, you know? It's just every day I'm doing it. So so those kinds of habits and behaviors about the concern about our wellness and thinking about our neighbors and community, like all that stuff, I think is so vital. And I hope these lessons are really baked in. I hope the pandemic was long enough to bake it in and but not so long that people are just like ready to jettison all of that stuff and like return to normal when normal was so problematic. Yeah, I mean, I think that pretty much sums up everything we kind of talked about today and left it on a positive note for yeah. moving forward. So that's all the questions I have. Absolutely. Well, Justin, thank you very much for talking with us. Oh, this was a great treat. I'm so excited about this uh, project, and I can't wait to hear the end results from everybody.
Sounds good. Thank you so much, Justin. That was the end of We Tested Positive for, for Sustainability. sustainability. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> nice. While the sun shines bright on my whole Kentucky home Tis summer and the people are gay And the corn tops rise while the meadows are in bloom Them birds are making music all the day Said weep no more, my lady, oh And we are back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, listening to the sweet, sweet sounds of Apple Latin. Many thanks to them for giving us permission to use their great local music in the podcast versions of our program, which you can find archived at forwardradio.org, and you can learn more about them at appalatin.com. Well, I hope you've gotten your calendars out. It is May. And time to take action for sustainability. It's time to move past the derby hangover and get ready and engaged for a more sustainable tomorrow. So many things you can do this week to make that a reality here in our community. Several things I want to tell you about uh, before we get to specific events this week. First of all, it's time for CSAs and New Roots is a local nonprofit organization that connects families to affordable fresh food through their bi-weekly fresh stop markets that help bring the community supported agriculture or CSA model to folks who cannot afford to invest hundreds of dollars at the beginning of this season but still supporting the farmers who need those funds uh, right now. Well, starting in June and going through October, interested families can come to their neighborhood fresh stop markets and pick up a bag of nine varieties of seasonal produce every other week. All families must pre-order and pay one week ahead for each bi-weekly market using automatic recurring payments of SNAP or debit or credit card. The time to sign up is now. New Roots has eight Kentuckiana locations this season, serving West Louisville out at Park Duval and California neighborhoods, Old Louisville, Shelby Park, Hikes Point, Barrytown, Portland, and Southern Indiana over in New Albany. And there's also one in Hazard, Kentucky this year. Shares are valued at $40, but there are discounts for families paying with SNAP benefits or EBT cards, and for those with limited resources paying with credit or debit cards. Everyone gets the same bag of nine varieties of fresh, seasonal, organic, and chemical-free produce purchased from local farmers no matter what you pay. There are opportunities for the entire family to volunteer as well. Signups have started, and there is a limited amount of produce, so do not delay, my friends. Everyone must sign up in advance, and you can do so at newroots.org or give them a call at 502-509-6770 or again go to newroots.org also want to remind you that the louisville compost co-op is here to provide residential collection service for your organics they will come and pick up and compost your food scraps and organic waste for just 
$20 a month. Residential members receive a weekly bucket pickup and drop-off at their home, uh, access to the quality compost produced by their own food scraps, and the peace of mind that comes with diverting your food waste from the landfill, where it would, of course, otherwise turn into methane, which is a supercharged greenhouse gas. In their first year, the Louisville Compost Co-op collected over 10,000 pounds of food waste. You can join them at louisvillecompost.com, or you can just dump your compost for free at their site located at 250 East Bloom Street. That's a large lot for UofL grounds and maintenance work, and the compost bin is at the back of the lot at 250 East Bloom. And uh, again, this is a great service. Uh, of course, if you've got a place on your property where you can put up a compost bin, uh, you'll save a bunch of money and you'll have direct access to the compost if you can do it yourself in your home compost bin. That's a great solution. That's what I do. I've been doing it for years. I love the fresh, rich compost I get out of that. It's so convenient to just be able to dump my bucket from my, my food scraps when I'm cooking uh, just outside my door. But if you live in an apartment or, uh, or too frail to manage a compost, compost bin or anything like that, whatever reason you might have, this is a great option for everybody. The Louisville Compost Co-op. Again, you can find them at louisvillecompost.com. Speaking of co-ops, now is also the time, my friend, to join the Louisville Community Grocery. Way back in 2015, a small group of community members and food justice advocates concerned about the loss of downtown grocery stores and the lack of access to fresh, healthy food in our urban core. We all came together with a mission to open a community-owned grocery store. We began exploring the possibility of a cooperative grocery to serve Louisville's urban neighborhoods. What started as a shared belief turned into a mission to open a community-owned store through a cooperative business model. We have worked with community members, UofL, and neighborhood organizations to research potential locations and services that community grocery should provide. We've held community events and done outreach campaigns to educate the community about cooperatives. Today, we are still working hard towards our goal of opening a community grocery, and we need your help to get there. Individuals, households, and local businesses can all become co-owners of the grocery today, and that is what we need to help us open the doors to food justice tomorrow. Standard lifetime ownerships cost just $150 for you and your family. And if you have economic barriers to ownership, you can choose to pay in five installments of just $30. And if you're a senior over 65, a youth under 25, uh, if you're unemployed, disabled, or a SNAP, an EBT user, or systemically disadvantaged in any way, you may purchase a subsidized Advantage share for one payment of just $25. No questions asked. We want this store to be for everybody. And Advantage shares have all the same benefits of ownership as the standard price shares. You can learn more and become a member or learn about volunteering today at LouisvilleCommunityGrocery.com. Also, I want to remind you of Kentucky Solar Stories. For the past year, the Kentucky Solar Advocacy Network has been developing the Kentucky Solar Stories Project to uplift stories of solar users all across the state. We know that people, businesses, farmers, faith communities, and nonprofits are all choosing solar as a way to take control of their electric bills to save money, become more self-sufficient, and lessen their impact on the planet. And now we can help share those stories with others. 
Uh, check out their new webpage and interactive map hosted on the Kentucky Solar Energy Society's website at kyses.org. That's kyses.org for Kentucky Solar Energy Society's website where you can find Kentucky Solar Stories. It's really cool. Also wanted to let you know that there is still a drive to get folks to sign a petition to Archbishop Kurtz to save the peaceful Eden Garden. The peaceful Eden Garden in the Beachmont neighborhood is a vital community space where people gather to grow food and build connections. Located on three acres of previously vacant land, this garden has become a vibrant and vital community asset. Not just a lovely green space, but a human space. Unfortunately, this garden is at high risk of being leveled and redeveloped by the landowner, which is St. John Vianney Catholic Church. And that will happen after the current 2021 growing season. Now, the majority of the growers at Peaceful Eden are new Americans who originally arrived in Louisville through the Refugee Resettlement Program, consisting of 133 plots directly tended by at least 120 separate families. Peaceful Eden feeds at least 500 families by way of grassroots sharing networks. Gardeners share with neighbors as well as friends and family members who live out of state, sometimes mailing vegetables or taking them when they travel. There are even families who have moved to Louisville just to be part of this garden. The garden is an indispensable source of food security for the community. It provides access to fresh, healthy, culturally appropriate produce, which can be prohibitively expensive at grocery stores and markets for individuals who face poverty. Many vegetables familiar in international communities are not even available in U.S. stores. Furthermore, uh, many international gardeners grew up helping their parents and grandparents on subsistence family farms, so they value the opportunity to pass on this generational agricultural knowledge to their own children. They say that the ability to grow, prepare, and enjoy familiar foods contributes to a sense of belonging and community in their new homes. Finally, Peaceful Eden is a true community-led project. It is managed collectively through democratic decision-making practices and volunteer garden leaders coordinate seasonal meetings, workshops, workdays, conflict resolution, data collection, and plot assignments. Organizers believe it is possible to find a solution that allows the garden to continue to exist and also allows St. John Vianney to successfully redevelop their property. Listeners are encouraged to sign and share a petition in support of Peaceful Eden Gardeners as they appeal to St. John Vianney Catholic Church, the Archdiocese of Louisville, and the Mayor of Louisville to collaborate with them in search of a solution that gives Peaceful Eden a future. You can find the petition and sign it and share it at change.org. Just search for Peaceful Eden and you will find it there. Again, change.org. Search for Peaceful Eden. Well, this week, Kentuckiana Air Education is celebrating Air Quality Awareness Week, May 3rd through 7th. The theme this year is Healthy Air, Important for Everyone. You can check the Air Quality Index, or AQI, every morning using real-time data. It's available at airqualitymap.louisvillekey.gov. That's airqualitymap.louisvillekey.gov. 
Small changes like reducing idling or swapping out your highly polluting gas-powered mower or trimmer or leaf blower for one that's human-powered or electric-powered or leaving the car and home and walking, biking, carpooling, or taking the bus, all of these things can have a big impact and will make a huge impact on our local air quality if we all do our part. You can learn more at helptheair.org or on Twitter at helptheair. Again, helptheair.org or Twitter, go for at helptheair. Now, coming up Wednesday, May 5th, the Southwest Louisville vaccine event is happening. It's the chance for everyone in Southwest Louisville to get a free vaccine against COVID-19. This is the only way we're going to crawl our way out of this pandemic and truly return to a safe normal. Uh, and that will be Wednesday, May 5th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Valley View Church, 8911 Third Street Road. Louisville Metro Council members Cindy Fowler and Amy Holton Stewart are partnering with Valley View Church to offer a COVID 19 vaccine event for anyone over 16 years old. Uh, and you can schedule an appointment uh, at NortonHealthcare.com slash Valley View. But walk-ins will also be accepted while supplies last. That's NortonHealthcare.com slash Valley View to schedule an appointment at Valley View Church from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Wednesday, May 5th. For assistance, you can also call 502-574-1125. Again, you must be 16 years or older. Bring a photo ID, and uh, if you do have insurance, bring your insurance card, though it is not required. It's free for everyone. Only individuals receiving the vaccine will be permitted in the vaccination area, and will, you'll, everyone will be asked to stay six feet apart from each other and wear a mask at all times. Wear a shirt that allows easy access to your upper arms, and you must stay on site for 15 to 30 minutes after you get the vaccine just to make sure you're okay. Uh, and your second dose will be scheduled on Wednesday, May 26th, also at Valley View Church. So if you're in Southwest Louisville, this is a great opportunity, a convenient opportunity on Wednesday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. to get your shot, get the jab, and feel like a superpower of, of immunity against COVID-19. It's, it's an awesome feeling. I got quite a rush when I got my vaccination. Again, NortonHealthcare.com slash Valley View. Now, on Thursday, May 6th at 9.30 a.m., it's Helping Our Communities, part one of the Making Connections Community Education Series. As we move forward in hope towards a post-pandemic world, our communities continue to suffer from racial and economic injustice, realities that existed long before the onset of the pandemic and have been exacerbated by it. Now is the time for us to gather together and figure out how we want to shape our new normal. Healing Our Communities is the first event in the Making Connections Community Education Series hosted by the Louisville Community Development Network. This series is designed to bring together community development corporation leaders to learn, network, and be inspired. Our keynote speaker for this gathering will be Dr. Monica Unseld. Monica earned her degree in uh, biology or doctorate in biology from U of L in 2008 and her master's in public health from Benedictine University in 2018. She's an environmental and social 
social justice advocate working with Coming Clean and the Environmental Justice Health Alliance. Dr. Unseld is currently the Director of Community Engagement at the Greater Louisville Project and recently founded the nonprofit Until Justice Data Partners. Her nonprofit assists other social justice groups in finding and incorporating data into their work while allowing them to control the narrative and refame our concept of knowledge and justice. The Louisville Community Development Network consists of more than 30 self-selected organizations who perform development throughout the Louisville metro area, including housing, social, educational, and economic development services. It, uh, the network exists to support community development corporations and other related nonprofits as they connect, collaborate, educate, advocate, and lead for a transformed community development ecosystem that centers neighborhoods and neighbors and affects positive change at the neighborhood level. You can learn more at centerforneighborhoods.org slash cdc network. And please register with an address at which you can receive mail because each participant will receive a lovely small gift. Again, this is May 6th at 9.30 a.m. You can learn more and register at centerforneighborhoods.org slash cdc network. Now, coming up on Friday and every Friday throughout the summer from noon to 1 p.m., University of Louisville's Garden Commons has their shared summer work days. The Garden Commons is now located at the southwest corner of Strickler Hall, just east of the Speed Art Museum. All are welcome at our weekly group workdays in UofL's Organic Garden. Uh, and uh, it's a great opportunity to learn together by doing how to grow hyper-local, super delicious vegetables, herbs, and fruits. Anyone can work in the garden at any time, but we gather together every Friday at noon throughout the summer to plant, weed, water, and harvest. Uh, no prior experience is necessary and tools and gloves are provided. Face masks and physical distancing will be required to keep everyone safe as we emerge from the pandemic. The Garden Commons is open to participation anytime from students, faculty, staff, and community members. And everyone who comes is welcome to a share in the harvest. You can learn more at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And we hope to see you Fridays at noon. Now, Saturday, May 8th, from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., and then again from 1 to 4.30 p.m., there is going to be a tree planting in the Shelby Park neighborhood. Everyone's meeting up at those times at Shelby Park at 599 Camp Street. You can join the Louisville Parks and Recreation Division of Community Forestry for a fun day of tree planting. We will be... Uh, we will be planting trees along roadsides in the Shelby Park neighborhood on May 8th, and we want you to join us. New volunteers are welcome, and we will train everyone on site, so no prior experience is necessary. But advanced sign-up is required, and you can find the link for the sign-up genius at facebook.com slash park. Again, go to facebook.com slash L-O-U-K-Y. K-Y-P-A-R-K. For questions, you can contact LMPR volunteer at louisvilleky.gov, or you can call them at 502-574-6403. And again, we hope to see you out at this volunteer tree planting in the Shelby Park neighborhood uh, at 599 Camp Street on Saturday, May 8th, 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., or you can sign up for the 1 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. shift. Again, facebook.com slash Park is a place to go to learn more and sign up to volunteer. 
Now, I've mentioned it before, and it is still happening. Another great volunteer opportunity is Hip Hop Cares and their Sunday Serve. Every Sunday, including this one coming up from 11 a.m. to noon at First and Broadway. Hip Hop Cares serves between two and 300 members of our community who are experiencing hunger and who are houseless. This pandemic has posed many, many challenges, particularly for our, the friends we serve. We need you, and we would love more volunteer involvement. There are several ways you can help. If you would like to make food or for our Sunday serve, we would love it. Uh, we continue to practice social distancing and wear masks. Volunteers prepare meals, uh, place them in a to-go container, and bring them to First and Broadway on Sundays at 10.45 a.m. They prepare hot meals that usually include a protein, starch, vegetable, or fruit, and dessert. And they try to keep the cost around $1.50 per meal. If you or your group would like to volunteer to help out with the Sunday Serve, just sign up online. You can also just drop off items you're able to donate or a volunteer can arrange to pick them up from you. There's always a need for uh, snacks and soft fruit, socks and new underwear, uh, gift cards to local businesses uh, and grocery stores, toiletries and basic necessities. And there's a whole um, list of items uh, available on their wish list. And you can find a link to that and a link to register or volunteer at their Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash hip hop cares 502. That's hip hop cares 502 502 at facebook.com uh, to help out with the Sunday 11 a.m. to noon at first and Broadway Sunday serve from hip hop cares. Now, right after that, every Sunday from noon to 2 p.m., you're also welcome to come out and help with UofL's community composting project. Their volunteers are great fun. Every Sunday at noon, we call it Compost Church, and it's again located at 250 East Bloom Street. Now, that's just one block north of Cardinal Boulevard between Brook and Floyd Streets. You can come and help us any Sunday to turn trash into treasure as we manage UofL's volunteer-powered community composting operation. Now, dress to get dirty, but tools will be provided. You can learn about work worm composting and all participants are welcome to haul back home some rich UofL compost for your own gardening projects uh, and bring whatever containers or vehicles you want to bring that home in. This is a weekly service opportunity throughout the year and you can contact Brian Barnes to learn more. You can call or text him at 502-338-1338 or learn more at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Ooh, and that's it for our community action calendar for this week. We've got a little extra time here on the show, so I'm going to bring you a short story from the Peace Corps Stories podcast. This is a fun little one about a volunteer growing watermelons in Mali. So I'll leave you with that and hope to hear from you again on Sustainability Now next week. In seven days' time, I'll be back in your ears again. It's been a pleasure. My name is Justin Mogg. We'll see you all next week, my friends. Enjoy this. Hello and welcome to Peace Corps Stories, the unofficial podcast, bringing you unfiltered, uncensored stories about life in the Peace Corps. 
I'm your host, Greg Emerson, and we are so happy to be back with you guys for another season of Awesome Stories. For now, we're kicking things off with an evacuation story from 2012, when volunteer Kevin Kwok was sent home from Mali because of a military coup. He was able to score at least one good win before he was sent home, though, which he told us about at our 7th annual Peace Corps Story Slam in 2018. Take it away, Kevin. So, my name's Kevin Kwok. I served in Mali. A little bit about what I like to do in the village. So, I was actually a small enterprise development volunteer. I did a lot of businessy stuff, but on the side, I like to, you know, I, I'd like to eat, but there wasn't a lot of vegetables in Mali. So, you know, I was always kind of roaming around the village in the market and seeing what I could find. And finally, one day, I saw tomatoes. And I was like, oh, I'm set for life, because if I can eat tomatoes, I can, eat, I, I can survive. <laughs> And then eventually, everyone in the market was like, oh, this guy, the tomati tigi. And I was like, what? The tomato king? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, this country, we, we only had, you know, tomatoes were every so often, and then we had, we were kind of known as the peanut country, and then onions and potatoes. So it wasn't really a lot of vegetables, so I needed some variety. So eventually, I started growing my own tomatoes. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then I worked, one of my counterparts was a farmer, and he always looked at me and said, you're not a farmer. And I was like, what? I was like, I'm growing my own tomatoes. He's like, please, you're not a farmer. And then I always tell him, I'm like, you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it. I, I feel like I was always doing that campaign. You're like, si se puede? Like, yes, you can. <laughs> so eventually one day I was rowing around the market and I found watermelons. I was like, oh, this is interesting. They import it and it only comes maybe about two months out of the year. So I brought it home, ate it, and I took the seeds and I told my, uh, my counterpart and I said, you know what, one day, I'm gonna grow my own watermelons. And he's like, you're not a farmer. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah? I was like, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Everything, anything's possible. And he's like, whatever. And then <laughs> the hot season was about to come, so it was probably like around December, January, it starts getting really, really hot, gets to about 100 degrees. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna start growing it. Start growing these like yogurt sachet packets, you know, just, just to get the little seedling going. And then I transplanted to my little garden outside and then went to start growing. It took about two months and I was like, oh, things are sprouting. And then there was about 10 little things coming out and I was like, oh, cool. But then with the heat and being in Mali in the Sahara, they started dying. I was like, oh no, I was like, I can't let him prove me wrong. So eventually I went to the boutique and I was like, I gotta find a way. I started looking around, I was like, oh, string. I think I can do something like that. So I, I started getting sticks and I started creating these like, like little poles and tents and start, I started using these strings and started tying it to my fence. And I started knitting these hammocks. And I was like, I never knit a hammock before, but this is kind of working. <laughs> As my watermelons started growing, and I put them in a hammock, and they started growing, but eventually I only had about two watermelons. And about this same time, we started having civil unrest. We had um, Al-Qaeda activity in the north, and also there was this coup at the same time in the capital, Amali, which was Bamako. And I was like, what's going on here? I'm growing these things. I'm trying to prove this guy wrong. <laughs> And then finally one day, the embassy just said, it's time to evacuate. And I just was really sad at that point. I invited the farmer's son, and then he's like, what's going on here? And I was like, I grew two watermelons. I was like, we're going to celebrate with this one watermelon. And once I cut open, I was so scared. I was like, oh my God, I hope there's no worms in there or anything, right? <laughs> cut open, pure red. It was great, delicious, and sweet. And then I looked at the other watermelon, and I said, this is for your father. And then the next day, I had to be evacuated. I was sitting on the side of the road. My counterpart was there with me. And he looked at me, and he's like, 
do you think you're a farmer? And I'm like, why is he asking me? He hates me. And then I said, no, I'm not a farmer. He stopped me. He said, no, you are a farmer. You grew the only two watermelons in Mali during this season, so you are a farmer. Thank you.